0: Please rise, court is now in session. All rise. Right. All rise.
1: Right. Is It Legal to A regular look at the legal system and you, a special production of The Missouri Bar. I'm Bob Pretty,
2: And I'm Farah Fayette. We've been bringing these podcasts to you, but we haven't discussed a basic question, how Missouri courts work.
1: So we have a couple of people with us today who are right in the middle of that issue. One is Judge Lisa Page. She's been a member of the court since Governor Nixon appointed her in 2015. She's a former family court judge and was the first woman circuit judge in Jefferson County and then served as a municipal judge in DeSoto and Crystal City.
2: Our other guest is Circuit Judge Ted House of St. Charles. Judge House was a member of the Missouri House of Representatives and then a member of the state senate and I still like to refer to you as senator from time to time since I first met you when you were a senator. He was an associate circuit judge for a couple of years before being elected to the circuit judgeship in 2004. Welcome to our program.
3: Thank you. Thank you for having us.
2: We want to start off at the very basic question of what is a judicial circuit? We hear about circuit courts and circuit judges, but where does the term circuit come from?
4: It's a historical term, of course, for when uh, the judges were on horseback and uh, rode the circuit. But Missouri is divided into 46 judicial circuits. Some of them are single county circuits. Some of them have multiple counties, up to five counties. That's how the uh, assignments are divided uh, pursuant to the Missouri law and the Constitution, and we have 46 circuits in Missouri.
2: Every county does have a courthouse though, so do judges rotate between the courthouses if there are multiple counties in their circuit?
4: The Missouri Constitution provides that every county has at least one associate circuit judge that is elected from just within that county, and then the circuit judges are designated by statute from the legislature, and if you're a circuit judge, your responsibility is to every county in that circuit. So if you're in a multi-county circuit, that circuit judge or circuit judges from that circuit will be responsible for presiding in all of those counties.
3: And I think each county with multiple counties and multiple associates kind of divides the work up according to how they see fit. So even though each circuit may have one associate, that associate may go to other counties within their circuit in a multi-county circuit.
1: So riding the circuit still is out there, isn't it?
3: We're just riding cars instead of horses.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You have associate circuit judges and circuit judges. Are there any other judges within that system that are
4: specialized judges? I'm thinking of probate judges. Where do they fit in? We do have individuals sometimes that are designated just as probate judges in a lot of the circuits uh, the probate judge is just assigned from one of the other judges one of the circuit judges or the associate circuit judges and we still have co- some commissioners in Missouri they have the uh, they hear cases just like judges but ultimately a judge would have to sign off on the uh, on a judgment that uh, that a commissioner would uh, would come up with so you know, there's, it's an interesting issue uh, that's, that's evolved over time from when we had magistrates and, in the counties and looking back over the history of the judiciary in Missouri, how all of that has evolved. And of course, with technology changes, now we do a lot of things by video and we're trying to uh, always you know, streamline and be more efficient. But um, ultimately, you know, most judges in Missouri pretty much do the same thing. The trial judges, you know, whether it's a commissioner or an associate circuit judge or a circuit judge. I think where we may be heading ultimately in Missouri is that uh, everyone is designated as the same. And we lose that historical distinction because it's becoming less and less of a real distinction as the judiciary continues to evolve.
1: What kind of cases do circuit judges handle? What's the minimum up to maximum,
4: I guess? Well, there is no maximum jurisdiction. Circuit judges can handle, of course, any any case. We have a large variety of civil cases that we hear dealing with all types of, could be business disputes, personal injury cases. Really, there's no limit on what type of civil cases we can hear. Then we have criminal cases, of course. That's, that's a whole different uh, procedure. We have domestic cases. That makes up a very large uh, portion of what circuit judges do. And of course, it can be probate and, and anything in between. So, Those are courts of general jurisdiction and handle all types of cases.
2: Do your circuits divide those out into divisions so that you have a judge who is only hearing certain types of cases, or is a judge handling every and any type of case that comes or is filed in that circuit?
3: It's generally the presiding judge who makes that decision and makes the assignments and and then has to adjust them according to changes on the bench after elections or by judicial appointments for the Missouri plan, So I think what we try to do, when I was a presiding judge, I tried to assign to people's strengths. But just because somebody likes or wants to do one thing, they don't get to pick just that one thing. They need to take a bunch of different things. And I would have to echo what Judge House said about there's very little difference. I was originally a family court commissioner, and there was no difference in the cases that I was hearing and the adult abuses that I was hearing than when I became a circuit judge. It really, I think, is a distinction without a difference pretty much these days. As a circuit judge, I heard associate circuit court replugging cases. It just depends on like disqualifications come in and. And sometimes you just can't find somebody else who's going to cheerfully take a case. So I think as presiding judge, you wind up taking it yourself a lot.
4: (laughs) I served as the presiding judge in St. Charles County for a term, and I agree with what Judge Page is saying. When you uh, split up the the caseload among all the judges in the circuit, for example, we have 13 judges in St. Charles County, you do want to go to the strengths of the judges. And also, you want to make it as efficient as possible and make it as fair as possible in terms of the distribution of the workload.
3: And everybody interprets fairness differently. Yes, they do. So... What you might consider fair may not be considered fair by the person who's been assigned that caseload. So then you have to be uh, very diplomatic.
4: Also, there are different uh, procedures in, in electing the judges. Associate circuit judges, typically in the counties which still elect judges, will serve for a period of four years. Those are four-year terms, and circuit judge terms are six-year terms. So there are those distinctions as well.
1: As I was listening to you a minute ago talk about the variety of cases you handle, I thought, how do you judges prepare yourselves for this huge diversity of legal issues that you have to rule on. Some people you know, specialize in something along the way, lawyers specialize, but judges, you know, you've got to deal with all kinds of issues. How are you educated to handle such a wide variety of things coming before
3: you? Judge House and I are both on the Trial Judge Education Committee, and every year in January we have something we call New Judge Orientation, and it is boot camp. It is tough, and it's in January, usually in Columbia, and we throw everything that they could possibly see as a trial judge at them, and you wind up feeling sorry for them, because they all wind up looking like deers in the headlights. It is overwhelming, but they also have this tremendous resource, because not only is it teaching in person, but it's also a wealth of materials, so... When you get something unusual to you, when you see something that you've never seen before, there's resources. And we have statewide, I would say, an incredibly generous judiciary. I could pick the phone up and call anybody that I met at New Judge Orientation, any of the educators at New Judge Orientation, and say, what do I do with this? And they are very generous with their time and their talents and point you in the right direction and tell you the case law. That is probably the best resource that we have. And then every year we have something called the trial colleges, which are held in the summer and in the fall. And we really try to make sure there's an update. Like I believe you do the criminal update, right, Judge House? I do. It's fun. The committee does a wonderful job of giving the judges a base at new judge orientation and then continuously updating it and making all the new information accessible.
4: It's not uncommon for me to have a you know a felony jury trial one day and then go to a complex civil business litigation the next. That sounds difficult, and it is. It's a challenge to do that. But at the same time, I think that variety is very nice. All I did was felonies all the time. Criminal, I think that could get a little taxing after a while. So the variety is actually... Very nice. Only in the largest circuits, I think, do the judges really specialize, where they have enough judges where they can do that. In virtually all, most of the circuits uh, throughout the state, particularly in the rural areas, the judges really have to do everything.
2: So it's judges and court personnel working together to make sure that cases are being heard efficiently and timely?
4: Well, we're under time standards from the Supreme Court to make sure that we're not violating the due process rights of the individuals, that we're moving things along. It's very important to move cases along as quickly as possible, still without rushing them or you know prejudicing either party. Those time standards are important. Citizens get very impatient when the judicial process takes a long time. And that's something, as a judge, I do a lot of is encouraging the parties and the lawyers, come on, let's move Let's move this along. There's got to be a resolution or a disposition. I've read your transcripts,
3: and you say that a lot.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Judge Page is my, she grades my homework. It's just important that we keep things moving and be efficient with the resources that the people of Missouri have given us to, for the administration of justice.
2: Many people, we found, don't really have a first contact or firsthand experience with the courts, and so we tend to envision them as maybe our favorite Courtroom drama or movie has depicted them, and in all of those, most every case ends up before a jury. Is that really the case, or what is the role of judges in deciding cases in Missouri?
4: It's really important that folks understand that this is not television, okay. And in fact, you know, we don't resolve every case in you know sixty minutes plus commercials. You know, it doesn't it doesn't work that way. And and the things you know when I watch. Uh, Legal shows on TV. I just want to throw my shoe at the TV because you know, you're thinking that's not the way it happens You can't do that. You know those are those are not the rules of evidence or procedure Unfortunately, a lot of folks get their impression of what goes on in courtrooms from television And that's actually a real problem because when we do have a real trial and you bring in a panel with a real jury A lot of times the lawyers will have to spend a lot of time explaining to them, you know Do you understand TV is fantasy? You understand that's Hollywood. That's not real. That's not how we're gonna operate here So you have to sort of inform the jurors about how due process and judicial procedure really works. So that's always a challenge.
3: So in the Eastern District, we took our oral arguments out into the community. Judge House sat with the Board of Appeals. One of our judges had to retire due to the mandatory retirement at 70. And so what we did to make up for our missing judge was we would invite a local trial judge to sit on the Court of Appeals and they would give a civic education committee presentation before so that the students could kind of get an idea of judicial decision making and then we would hold oral arguments and then the the local trial judge would sit with us for oral arguments the reaction of the students in the question and answer sessions afterwards was really interesting and they were so intrigued and had such great questions and such great rapport afterwards in one of the schools one of the students said boy your job's boring <laughs> And I'm like well no it really isn't I mean if you love the research and the writing, there's no case that's boring. It's just maybe not as intriguing to somebody who's watching oral arguments as, as it is to us on the court
2: so you literally had the panel of judges instead of having everyone come to the courthouse we went out went to the community to the community and had all the same over the Eastern District. And procedures yes throughout the state. That's fantastic.
3: Yes. So we've gone from Hannibal all the way down to Cape Girardeau.
4: If we get one message out, it is that we want very much for the people of Missouri to know that a judge wants to come to your school, your civic organization group. It could be elementary school, middle school, high school, college. Um, Rotary clubs, um, optimist clubs, uh, churches, mosques, synagogues. It is that we have a civic education program, and it's, it's just to help, help folks understand how the Missouri judiciary operates, why we do things the way that we do, and to understand that process, because it's so important for citizens to be informed and educated about the judiciary as an independent branch of state government and the fair and impartial administration of justice. When you go out into a
1: community, or when you've gone out into a community, what do you find to be the most common misunderstandings that the people you talk to have about what you do and how the system works?
3: I think they're surprised at how little discretion we have. I think they're always surprised by the concept that we don't just say, well, I like this, so this is what I'm going to do. No, We follow the law. We follow the law. We follow the law. Judge House was actually a legislator. He got to write the law. but. The majority of the judges, we do not write the law, we follow the law. And sometimes we have to hold our nose to follow the law. There was some and some of our civic education programs are specifically focused on judicial decision making and the difficult decisions. I presented on Colmeyer versus Hazelwood at Southeast Missouri State's Constitution Day programming. And it was so interesting to watch these students they're like, Well, what do you mean you you don't do what you want to do. They were very intrigued by how does judicial decision making occurs and what constitutes precedent. Because we spent a lot of time on, here's the facts of this case, here's the legal precedent, and then they got to be the judge. There's two big issues in this case. Half the room talked about one issue and the other half of the room talked about the other issue. But those two groups were divided up into two different groups to see if they would come up with different ideas. And the dynamics of watching them figure it out and, and then all of a sudden the l- rule that they thought was kind of questionable made sense. It our, was really fascinating. Our
4: presentations are designed to be engaging. So that's mm-hmm. Judge Page has described how that works with our civic education presentation. But the key point on this is that judges follow the law. You know, I was a legislator, I was a state senator, I got I got to make the law, okay? That was great. I enjoyed that. But being a judge is a very different job. And we don't make the law, we follow the law. And I think a lot of folks, have a, have a you ask Bob about the you know the misimpression folks have that uh, judges can get just go out there and follow their own you know philosophical or political or, or beliefs and we're not allowed to do that we are we are obligated to follow the laws of the state the constitution of the state and the constitution of the United States we don't always get to do things the way we want to do them and don't always have the outcomes that we would like to have well I have to ask you this
1: because I covered you when you were in the state senate if, with your experience as a judge. What do you wish you had known <laughs> when you were in the Senate when it came to writing the laws?
4: Oh my. I wish I knew then what I know now. (laughs) Um, I have that thought just about every day. When I first became a judge after serving in the Senate, it was always fun when lawyers would stand up and try to argue what a statute meant, you know, or how I should interpret the statute. And I'd sort of chuckle to myself and think, I wrote that statute. (laughs) I know the legislative history behind that. As it moves on, you know, it's just important that judges follow the laws and don't let our own biases or, or prejudices get in the way of that.
2: It's a lot of it boiled down to the exact wording of the law and do things as small as a comma make a difference in, in how you can rule or, or view a decision?
4: So not every statute is crystal clear, okay? There are political reasons why statutes are sometimes a little bit ambiguous or a little bit unclear. You know, I understand the nuts and bolts process that went into creating that statute and why it just isn't the model of clarity. The
2: sausage making. Uh, It is
4: is the sausage making of uh, the legislative process. You know, Winston Churchill said democracy is the worst form of government there is except for every other form of government. So as a judge, you'll look at a statute that's maybe just a little bit ambiguous or you then have to apply what may be a perfectly good statute, but then you have to apply it to the facts that you have in the case in front of you. And so there is judicial discretion in that sense, you know, because you have to apply the law to the facts that you have and then make a decision or the jury makes the decision once you've instructed them on the law.
2: So at the trial court level, if someone is unhappy with the outcome of a case, what happens next?
4: Well, that's where Judge Page comes in. <laughs> if you want a job as a judge to make people happy all the time, you're probably in the wrong profession because that's that's not going to happen. Typically, you'll, someone will feel like that they have not prevailed in the case. Judge Page, take it over. Judge Page is on the Court of Appeals. So.
3: They have to give the trial judge the opportunity to make it right if they feel like the trial judge has made a mistake in order to preserve the issues for our court to consider them. So there's always a motion for a new trial filed that may or may not be ruled on by the trial judge, and they file a notice of appeal, and then the case comes to us for a briefing process, then eventually turns into oral argument in quite a few cases. There's also something called submitted on briefs where they submit the briefs, but they don't ask for an oral argument. And sometimes you really wish they would have had oral argument, and I've I've asked, can we make them? And they're like, well, no, we generally don't do that. But basically... We take a look at whether or not the trial court got it right, and by and large, they, they get it right.
4: But a lot of people, I think, when they talk about appealing a case, they think, well, I just don't like the result, so I can there's appeal a it. Diff- and There's a
3: difference. Correct. There's a difference between the judge making a mistake, which is what we would review as opposed to not liking the result.
4: For example, in a jury trial, the, the judge decides the law, but the jury decides the facts. And so those factual determinations, you know, are almost impossible to overturn on appeal if the jury's determined, you know, the credibility of a witness or what the facts are. So that's not really reviewable very much, but it's it's if the judge made a mistake on the law typically is what can be appealed. And Judge Page described that process. After a jury trial, for example, they can file a motion for a new trial. And we do have the opportunity as a trial judge to change something if we think that we made a mistake. Now that's, Human nature is that's hard to do because if you sustain a motion for a new trial, you're, you're basically... You start over. <laughs> well, you have to do it again, which is a, a judicial resource issue. But also, you're basically ruling that you made a mistake. And sometimes if if it's the right thing to do and you have to do that, then you got to do it. If you realize later in the heat of the trial that, yeah, I may have gotten something important wrong in that case, so you can retry. Typically, I would say it's safe to say, Judge, that in the vast majority of cases, motions for new trial are not sustained, and the party who feels aggrieved has the opportunity then to appeal that to the Court of Appeals.
2: And then on the Court of Appeals, how many judges are there in your Eastern District, and then how many actually
3: hear each case? We work in uh, panels of three judges. I don't think we've sat in bank. I've been there almost four years, and we've not sat in bank the entire time, which means all of the judges hearing a case, and it's been several years since I think we did. So we generally work in panels of three. There's a presiding judge, and so the chief judge picks these panels of three, and they basically tell you who you're going to work with from July 1st through June 30th of that year, and I think we have five divisions. The chief judge has is one division. And so then the other four divisions have three judges with one presiding judge who kind of manages our panel. So right now I'm sitting with Judges Hess and Oldenwald, and Judge Hess is our presiding judge. And can I go back to one thing that Judge House said that I thought was really important as far as what I would always tell my litigants as a trial judge is I'm going to try to make you both happy, but failing that, I'm probably going to make you both equally unhappy to the best of my ability and sometimes that would get them talking and they could at least settle some of the issues that were important to them. But I think then as a trial judge, it's very important that you listen and pay attention and try to figure out what people really need from the courts. And th- these are in bench-tried cases. The, once you go to a jury, you put your fate in the hands of a jury. But I think in bench-tried cases, the appearance of justice is equally important as doing justice. And so people have to feel like they've been heard. And sometimes, particularly with people who I thought their argument was not persuasive, I would repeat it back to them and say, I think I hear you saying, do I have your point correct? And again, even though they weren't going very unlikely to prevail, that 10 second question went a long way towards giving them the appearance that they were heard. And I think that that's just as important as making a right decision.
4: And Farrah, I'd like to add, as a as a trial judge, I cherish the appeals process. My job as a trial judge is to get it right. I want to try every case once. I want to follow the law. I want justice. I want the right decision, okay? But I'm a human being, and I'm one person, and these are often very complex legal issues. I could make a mistake. I cherish as a citizen, as a Missourian, as an American, the right of individuals to go to this three-judge appellate panel who can, frankly, take a lot more time than I have and have a lot more resources than I have and can, in a cooler moment, review the decisions that we make on these complex legal issues. And that is such an important part of democracy. It is such an important part of the judicial process. And it's just a fundamental right that citizens have to review the decisions that I made that's a beautiful thing. I hope I get it right. When I get out of bed in the morning and go to work in the St. Charles County Courthouse, my objective is to get it right. But I'm glad we have this process. I don't know if you've ever had a ruling overturned, but if you have, did you go to school on that? Did you learn something? (laughs) Well, the answer is yes, I have. My feeling on that is if you've never been reversed as a trial judge, you've never tried complicated cases. That's the way I feel about that. Of course, you want to learn from that because you never stop learning in any profession at any time. There are different ways of being reversed. I always put it into three categories. One category is, yeah, they're right. I messed that up. I made a mistake. Just just realizing flat out that you just missed something. Then there's the category of... There was no, you know, no precedent on that particular issue. You didn't really have any guidance or direction from previous cases. It could have gone either way. And maybe, you know, there's a split decision among the appellate court or, you know, I mean, I've been overruled four to three by the Missouri Supreme Court. Well, you know, that's not that's not humiliating. I mean, three Supreme Court judges thought, you know, thought you did it right. Right. So, I mean, and there's, you know, it it could have gone either way. And that's just that is what it is. And you just try to learn from that. Then the third category, if you get reversed by the by the appellate court is they're just flat wrong. <laughs> I, I read that opinion. I think I'm more right now than I did then, and and think that they that they misunderstood what happened or, or didn't understand you know what transpired in the court. So it, it can run the gamut on uh, on how you feel about that. But you want to learn in, in any situation.
3: Well, and I think too, our record is so limited, and you know we can read the transcript. You can catch very gentle admonitions in Judge House's let's move this along. I mean, so knowing some of the personalities of the judges, you can almost hear them talking in their transcripts. But it really isn't the same as sitting in the courtroom, calling the balls and strikes. Sometimes it felt like a hundred miles an hour. And, and this is
4: why it's so important to have appellate judges who were trial judges. Sometimes you get appellate judges that uh, did not have a lot of legal experience and maybe it was a, you know, a political connection or whatever. That's okay. But having Appellate judges like Judge Page, who were in the jury trial as a trial judge, is extremely important for the judiciary.
1: This sounds like a good time for a segment we call Legal Ease with retired Supreme Court Judge Mike Wolf. Legal Ease, that means we asked Judge Wolf to translate the lawyer's language into English. Judge
0: legal ease. I'm going to do a brief history of Missouri's selection of judges. Four decades ago, there was a popular TV commercial urging us to try a new breakfast cereal called Life. The commercial had some little kids, one of whom was named Mikey, trying to decide whether to try the new breakfast cereal. One kid said, let Mikey try it. He'll try anything. Well, when it comes to selecting judges, Missouri is the Mikey of judicial selection. There was a new one in 1940. We tried it and we've had it for 80 years. That's our life. A brief history seems in order. When Missouri became a state in 1821, Our first Constitution prescribed the same method for selecting judges, as is used in the federal government. Judges were nominated by the governor and confirmed by the state Senate for lifetime appointments, just as federal judges are nominated by the president and confirmed by the United States Senate. Well, that may have been a good model, but it was not good enough for Missouri. Missouri judges, like federal judges, could be removed by impeachment and trial by the Senate, and in some states, judges were impeached and removed. The hot topic in Missouri in the early years of statehood was slavery. Nearly 40 years leading up to the Civil War, there were many lawsuits that slaves brought to secure their freedom. The basis for their claims was that they had traveled to free states and thus could be considered to be free. The Missouri courts granted freedom to quite a few of them. The judges, of course, were not subject to the voters, and popular opinion in many parts of our state was in favor of slavery. The 1830s and 1840s brought to Missouri a populist wave that attacked the privileged elites, judges among them. Some of the public objected to unelected judges deciding cases which, in our common law tradition of judicial decision-making, they equated with lawmaking. The critics' of the judiciary asserted that elected officials should make laws, not unelected judges. In 1848, the Missouri legislature at the behest of some of our state's leading lawyers, proposed a constitutional amendment requiring the election of judges, which the voters approved in 1849. The newly elected Missouri Supreme Court reversed course on slavery in 1852 and ruled in a case against Dred Scott and his wife Harriet, who had won their suit for freedom in a St. Louis courtroom. The Scots got new lawyers who went to federal court and eventually went to the United States Supreme Court, which infamously ruled that the Scots could not sue for their freedom because, as blacks, they had no rights of citizenship, and that Congress had no power to curtail slavery in the new territories and the new states. Elections for judges, largely in rural Missouri, persist to the present day. In the 1930s, however, lawyers and civic organizations got behind a movement to adopt a kind of a hybrid appointment and election form of judicial selection in St. Louis, Kansas City, the Court of Appeals, and the Supreme Court, the impetus for the proposed plan was that judges in the urban centers of St. Louis and Kansas City were put on the ballot by party ward bosses who were not always attentive to qualifications. In Kansas City, the powerful political boss, Tom Pendergast, was the man to see if he wanted to be elected judge. Missouri voters in 1940 approved the proposed plan, which ever since has been called the Missouri non Court Plan, and copied in some form in a majority of states. The plan provides that judicial commissions for those courts screen candidates and nominate three candidates from which the governor is to appoint one. After at least a year on the bench, the appointed judge is to stand for retention, where the voters say yes or no to the judge's continuing in office. In 1942, the legislature, which did not have a hand in proposing the earlier amendment, proposed a constitutional amendment to repeal this Missouri plan, but the voters refused to change it. When the Constitution was rewritten in 1944, the drafters kept the Missouri Plan as part of the state constitution, which the voters approved as the Constitution of 1945. Since that time, voters in Clay, Platt, St. Louis, County, and Greene Counties have opted for the Missouri Plan for appointment of judges instead of directly electing them. Missouri judges, unlike their federal counterparts, do not serve for life. At age 70, a judge's service must end. In our state, we now have this nonpartisan appointment method for appeals judges, Supreme Court judges, and trial judges in Kansas City, St. Louis, Clay, Platt, and Green counties. In the remaining counties, judges run as nominees of political parties. So when it comes to judicial selection, we are not a one-size-fits-all state. A judge in rural Missouri runs for election, which can be contested. In nonpartisan court plan courts, the voters get to say yes or no, but do not have opposing candidates to choose on the ballot. When I was on the ballot for retention in 2000, after my appointment to the Supreme Court in 1998, I recall that about 69% of the voters said yes. But that also means that about a half a million of my fellow Missourians said no. I don't know a half a million people, and I doubt that they knew me. But still, it is humbling to know that a half a million people said no. But more than a million people said yes. I had no campaign. I made no promises. Most people, frankly, should not want their fate or fortune to be decided by a judge who did make campaign promises. The First Amendment guarantees that judicial candidates can make promises just like political candidates, but most are not foolish enough to do so. They must remind themselves, we are judges, not politicians, and we hope the public sees us that way. So, appointment of judges or elections? Yes, of course. We Missourians will try both. We're like Mikey. That's our life. And it's not just a serial. This is Judge Mike Wolf. with thanks to you voters for my 69% approval rating. ease.
1: What role does
4: a judge play in selection of a jury? Are you just watching it happen?
5: or
0: So
4: you want to let the lawyers conduct their examination of the jury panel. I like to stay out of the way and let the lawyers do that. You know, a panel, of course, is selected randomly from the citizens in the district. So that's all random and the numbers that they get are, are random. But you know every jury trial starts with the process of the examination of the jury panel, and then you narrow it down, you know, to the 12 and the alternates who sit on the jury. I like to stay out of it. Now, obviously, if a, if someone asks a question of the jury panel that's improper, the other party will object, and then it's your job to to resolve it.
3: Well, I think you have to pay attention to what the questions are because later on they will raise challenges to different jurors, and so you've got to be paying attention. Was this juror really acting sleepy and disinterested? was this juror being excluded for what they call a Batson challenge, for a protected class. There has to be a gender-race-neutral reason for wanting to strike that juror. So I think you do have to pay attention, but I think that getting out of the attorney's way and letting them try their case from the beginning in the jury selection through the conclusion, the less the judge says and just lets the lawyers get their case tried, it's efficient, as you pointed out earlier. Unless you have to move them along a little bit. Quite frankly, it's less likely to get reversed if you stay out of the way and let them try their case.
4: But at no point in the trial does the judge have to pay more attention than during the examination of the jurors. I'm right. writing feverishly because I have to keep track of their answers. And even right. though there's a reporter over there making a transcript, you don't always have time to go back and review all of that. So, yeah, if somebody says something on a, on a jury panel that disqualifies them and indicates that they cannot be a fair and impartial juror in that case, you're you're writing feverishly to make sure that but that But you also person... have to keep
3: your eyes on the jurors themselves to make yes. sure that they're paying attention and that they're attentive because you don't want a juror who's going to be falling asleep in the middle of your trial.
4: And you're reading body language from jurors and-
3: We
2: were just talking about juries and the jury selection process, but at the appellate level, there are no juries. It's only judges that are hearing the cases. Can you tell us a little bit more about the Court of Appeals in
3: Missouri and the districts that there are? Well, we have three districts, the southern, which is in Springfield, the western, which is in Kansas City, and then obviously the eastern, which is in St. Louis. And each district has their own policies and procedures about how they divide cases up and how they do things. One of the things that we do that I don't think the others do is once the panel's cases are divided up, so basically if there's, just for round numbers, a 100 cases for the month of October, there will be divided up over the four panels. Once the the cases go to the panel, they're drawn out of a hat as to which judge writes them. And so people were always like, you draw them out of the hat? And yes, we do. But it works really well unless you're the judge who draws all the really hard cases because it got you just happen to draw all the hard cases out of the hat, which sometimes happens. But um, by and large, it doesn't. It seems to work really well. But I think every court of appeals has their own process. And in the Eastern District, um, we try to have our opinions out within 30 days of them being submitted. They may not be submitted at oral argument. We may encourage the parties to attempt a mediation process, or we may encourage the parties to file a stipulation as to something that we don't think is clear in the record, and that we think that that's where they are, but we aren't sure, so then we may give them a week to you know submit a, a stipulation of some sort. And so once that window closes as to whether or not they're going to go to mediation, and if they go to mediation, whether or not it was successful, those are the dates that the cases deemed submitted, and then we generally have our opinions out within 30 days after that. And again, the thing that judges have to keep in mind and that you can kind of lose the forest for the trees is this is the most important thing in these people's lives. If you're a trial judge, a court of appeals judge, or a Supreme Court judge, you need to remember this may be one case to you and you've got a hundred others, but for each one of those hundred cases, this is the most important thing. In their lives. It is what they are going home and talking to their family about every day. It is what their neighbors and their friends are talking about with them every day by and large and I think that efficiency in the process and trying to get them through this process in the most efficient time standard but still making sure that everything is all the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed it can be a bit of a challenge.
4: It's amazing to think of the profound impact on people's lives that a decision that you can make has. It is remarkable. I, I agree with what Judge Page is saying on that. And not just the decision itself, but things like how you make someone feel, okay? Usually when someone comes in the courthouse, it may not be the best day of their life, okay? I've learned long ago the hard way if you see a friend in the courthouse, you know, don't say, "So, what brings you to the courthouse here today?" okay? Because it might not be very pleasant. And, you know, it's a foreign process to a lot of people. They're uncomfortable, they're nervous, their life, property, children are at stake, their freedom. We have to always be cognizant of how we make someone feel when they walk in our courtroom. They may win, they may lose, or it may be a draw, but they've got to feel that they saw justice happen in that courtroom and that we made them feel comfortable as a part of that process.
1: Do you have to take a case that is appealed to the appeals court, or can you let the circuit court ruling stand?
3: No, we we hear every appeal that's brought to the Court of Appeals. The Supreme Court has the discretion on which cases they hear, but we do not.
1: Now, can I skip you and go straight to the Supreme Court?
3: In certain cases, yes. In certain what, cases, What yes. does it take? The Supreme Court has original jurisdiction over certain kinds of cases. and But by and large, they go through the Court of Appeals first.
2: You were just talking about making sure that for every individual that encounters the courts, that they feel that they are not lost in the shuffle. Correct. In Missouri, there are nearly 2 million cases filed and disposed of every year, that seems like a great deal. What are some of the ways that you're able to balance the need to make sure that citizens feel heard in the process, but also just being efficient and having to handle that many cases?
4: We have a very high caseload and limited resources. The judiciary is about 2% of the state budget, so we have to protect the rights of citizens, our constitutional fundamental civil liberties with the resources that we have. A lot of those cases would be traffic violations or ordinance violations. We have municipal divisions within the judicial circuits. Okay, I think a lot of folks think that the municipal courts are separate independent courts, but they're not. They are divisions of the judicial circuits, those 46 judicial circuits that we talked about. So the the presiding judge of the circuit is responsible for overseeing all of the municipal courts, for example. That's a very important responsibility. But handling that volume is just something that we're called upon to do. And we have to do that in a just way and efficiently. And I'm always impressed with my colleagues. We have a great judiciary in Missouri, work very hard and full of wonderful, dedicated people that reflects the diversity of Missouri. And our staff, our clerks and the people who make the courthouse run that have contact with the public every day. They're just absolutely wonderful people. They're not paid a whole lot of money and they work very hard.
3: And I would add to that the Office of State Courts Administrator, they are a wonderful resource for the judges. The juvenile office, we couldn't function without the juvenile office in there helping us try to divert these youth from becoming our criminal defendants down the road. So there are so many components that make it all work. The administrative arm of it, in addition to the clerks, is significant and it just requires everything running efficiently to make sure that those two million cases are disposed of as efficiently and Serving justice as much as possible.
4: Bob you asked about jury trials Um, You know fortunately of course a very small percentage of cases are actually tried to a jury Uh, Obviously if we had to try two million jury trials We'd be booked for 2037 right now. So most civil cases ultimately get settled and you know, there are pretrial motions that we hear and rule on, and sometimes that helps facilitate the settlement. Same way with criminal cases. Ultimately, most of them are resolved by the defendant. Case is either dismissed, or in most cases, the defendant pleads guilty. Okay, And the prosecutor you know, makes an offer, uh, a recommendation for the disposition of the case. And, and the judge doesn't have to take that recommendation, but if we don't, the case kind of blows up. So most of the time, we'll go along with the recommendation of the prosecuting attorney. It's really a small percentage of cases, you know, one or two percent of cases that actually get tried to a jury. Jury trials are, are long and involved and take a lot of resources and a lot of time. And when we have one, we give it the attention that it needs. But the system is designed where most cases are actually resolved short of a jury trial.
1: That's kind of feeding into a question I was going to ask you is what percentage of civil lawsuits or criminal cases actually do get into your courtroom other than to say, We've reached a, an agreement before we even come in.
4: Well, we'll see virtually every case at some point. Mm-hmm. There are there are pretrial motions, you know, uh, uh, motions to try to resolve the case, you know, short of trial. Um, so we'll have some hands-on contact with almost every case. But uh, as I say, most of them, ultimately, the lawyers do realize it's it's probably in the best interest of their clients to reach a settlement.
1: So plea bargains are a big part of criminal cases, especially.
4: The system could not function without mm-hmm. plea bargains. And sometimes, you know, that doesn't mean that everyone's happy. The victim may not be completely happy. If your home was burglarized and the prosecuting attorney's recommending probation, they might not be too happy about that. But obviously there's all kinds of other issues dealing with that with limited state resources. You know, the prisons are full. When I was in the Senate, we built three new maximum security prisons at the tune of $80 million a piece to build. Those prisons are full today. And I have to understand as a trial judge, I may have somebody that deserves to go to prison. If we need to protect the public, we will. We'll do what's right. But if we put somebody in a prison, and someone's got to come out. And, you know, fortunately, we have the probation process and the parole process, so there are ways to try to protect society and, and do justice without necessarily incarcerating everybody. Now, again, if somebody's dangerous and violent and there was a finding of guilt, then you got to do what you got to do. But that plea bargain process is very important because obviously we don't have the resources to try every case.
2: How much discretion does a judge in Missouri have in sentencing? I know at the federal level, there's almost like a mathematical formula that sets the guidelines there. But in Missouri, is is it sole discretion of sentencing at the judge, or there?
4: Every offense has a range of punishment, depending on what offense it is. You know, a class E felony, a class D felony, et cetera. And in Missouri, the judges actually have a pretty good amount of discretion on sentencing, for example, in, uh, in criminal cases. Much more so, I think, than federal judges do. I hope we don't lose that. Every case is different. Every, cases that look the same on paper are in fact and reality often very different. The level of culpability, you know, of the defendant. You can have two, two co-defendants charged in a case with the very same offense, and once you've heard the evidence, you know that one of them is a lot guiltier than the other one, you know, that level of culpability. And so you adjust the sentence accordingly, and I hope we never lose that discretion.
3: And then at the Court of Appeals, there is significant discretion to the trial courts. So we defer significantly to what they find and with how they rule.
1: Earlier in our program, the word precedent came up. Uh, Somebody has to make a precedent somewhere along the line. But as judges, how do you deal with making a precedent in a ruling of some kind?
3: There are cases, particularly with statutes that have yet to be interpreted, which is where you're most likely, I think, to set precedent and I would say very cautiously, very, very cautiously. Sometimes you may be looking at a case and the precedent that the the law says one thing and we may transfer that case to the Supreme Court because we're not exactly sure how that applies in today's world and in today's different rulings or court rules that have come out that may impact what that precedent is. So sometimes the courts of appeals will say to the Supreme Court, we don't know and we need you to set the precedent or perchance to reset the precedent or to review the precedent and tell us what to do.
4: And sometimes as a trial judge, there's no precedent. And so you just have to make a decision as best you can and then let the, <laughs> let the Court of Appeals decide how that's going to get Or sometimes
3: settled. the lawyers will take a statute and craft a novel argument saying this statute really says this and nobody's ever seen that statute say that. And so you just, as Joe said, you make that decision. You may have the lawyers really trying to change the precedent or get a new interpretation and set a new precedent where it really doesn't exist. And so as a trial judge, those are, I think, some of the trickier calls that you have to make. And you you make your decision. And And I always told the attorneys, this is the best I can do as a trial judge. If you don't agree with me, please have the Court of Appeals grade my homework and tell me where I went wrong. But this is how I see the law. Often
4: though, there is clear precedent and the trial judge is is bound by that precedent. And so we we look for that, we search for that because we don't want to reinvent the wheel every time. And uh, in most cases, there is some pretty clear precedent.
2: Missouri's Constitution ensures that all judges in Missouri are accountable to the voters. But in 1940, Missouri adopted the Missouri Nonpartisan Court Plan. And it's a really unique hybrid system, which allows each county to determine how they would like the initial selection of their judges to be, whether it's through partisan elections or through a judicial appointment process. You, Judge Page, have gone through both of those. And Judge House, you were elected at the county level. Can you just talk to us a little bit about your experiences with how that system works in Missouri? And then also, if there's anything that you think voters should be looking to know or find out about a judge before they vote or a candidate for judge before they vote?
3: Well, I think I have found my way to the judiciary through the most different avenues. So I was originally appointed a municipal court judge by city administrators and mayors in, in Crystal City and DeSoto, and then the court and bank appointed me a family court commissioner. And about six months after I was appointed a family court commissioner, they converted all of the commissioners in both St. Charles and Jefferson County into associate circuit judges and created new circuit judges. And at the same time in Jefferson County, our bench had a bunch of, I think, three sitting judges retired that same year. So the Jefferson County bench took a big shakeup and so I was elected. Fortunately, I was one of the lucky judges who ran unopposed both times. And then I went through the Missouri plan to be appointed to the to the Court of Appeals. I'm not too sure that all those different routes have kind of given me a different perspective on judicial selection. And I've now sat as the chair of the commission for, that selects the panels that go to the governor for the associate circuit vacancies in St. Louis City and St. Louis County. And it was also interesting, my very first panel as the chief judge of the Court of Appeals was in St. Louis county for a circuit judge in the exact same week. My husband was elected an associate circuit judge in Jefferson County. So I lived in both the elected world and the Missouri plan world that whole summer. The election and the selection of the panel was all within like 48 hours. So it was a really interesting corner of the world and how we select judges and getting to see both sides.
4: Missouri's nonpartisan court plan is the gold standard across the United States on the selection of judges in a way that's really fair and proper, and we end up with really good judges who know what they're doing. Now I live, as Judge Page indicated, I'm, I'm an elected judge. St. Charles County is the largest county in Missouri that still elects its judges. And we've got 400,000 people in St. Charles County, so whether or not that's a good thing moving forward in such a huge county to have to run a, a partisan political contested election in a county of 400,000 people, I'll leave that up to the people of St. Charles County to decide eventually if they want to. They want to continue to do that. A lot of people say, you know, they vote for judges and have no idea, you know, really who 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 are all these judges on the ballot and who we're, who we're voting for. I think, but there's no question that our nonpartisan court plan for our judges in the large urban areas, the trial judges, and then the appellate judges is a a wonderful way to select judges. There is no system in the world that's totally free of politics. But thank goodness we don't elect statewide appellate or Supreme Court judges and put all the special interests and the millions and millions of dollars into those campaigns that some other states do. It it hurts people's impression of our system of justice and it really damages, I think, everybody's... uh, confidence in the judiciary when we have those knockdown, down drag-out, partisan, contested political elections for judges. The Missouri nonpartisan court plan is the best way to do it, in my opinion.
2: And is there anything that you would encourage voters to look for or look at, whether it be the record of the judge or biographical information? What do you think is the most important information for voters to have?
4: Obviously, the more informed voters are, you know, the better off everyone is. We want voters to have as much information as possible. One thing that judges really have to keep in mind is that that we reflect the values of the community. And, you know, Missouri is a diverse state. And let's face it, our urban communities and our suburban communities and our exurban communities and our rural communities often look at things in different ways. And having judges in those areas that know that area and reflect the values of that community, that's a very good thing. And I I think that's what we have in Missouri, is that the judges reflect the values of the community from which they come. At the risk of uh, sounding immodest here, I don't mean to do that, I know the people of St. Charles County. I have run 12 contested elections in (laughs) St. Charles County. I have knocked on over 20,000 doors in St. Charles County. You know within the parameters of the law and the precedent and the framework that we talked about earlier i mean i think i know the values that the people of st charles county want me to reflect on the bench that's a really really valuable thing to have
1: this has been a very far-ranging program that we've had today it's been fascinating and we're so glad that we've had two people with us like back to two that have been our guests judges lisa page and ted house helped us better understand our court system, especially as their part in that court system. So thank you for being with us on this edition of Is It Legal Too?
3: Thank you for asking us. You're very welcome. Thank you.
1: Before we go, this program series is going to be focusing on a lot of our basic individual rights to shed some light on the U.S. Constitution and the rights we have under it.
2: Here's the Missouri Bar Citizenship Education Director, Tony Simons, to tell us more.
5: The framers of the Constitution gave the different branches of government different sources of power. They gave the legislative branch control over the money, the power of the purse. They gave the executive branch control over the sword, the use of the military and law enforcement. And the courts? Here the framers did something fascinating. They said to the judiciary, your power will be based upon the trust and confidence the people have in you. If the courts have the trust and confidence of the people, then the courts will have the power they need to do their job. In order for the people to have that trust and confidence in the courts, then the people need to understand what the courts do and the essential role the courts play in our constitutional system. While some would say that we all learn this in school, judges and lawyers possess an expertise and a perspective that very few people have. That's why those involved with the courts need to be involved in educating the public on the vital role played by the judiciary. Both of our guests today have served as chair of the Civic Education Committee of the Supreme Court of Missouri. This committee was created to help Missourians to understand the essential nature of a fair and impartial judiciary in our constitutional system. This is more than just a public relations campaign. Civic education is an essential part of enhancing the public's knowledge about the courts. And as we've seen, the public's understanding of the courts is a vital component of the judiciary's power. The more people know and understand about the courts, the more likely it is that they will recognize the legitimacy of the courts. That is why the work of people like Lisa Page and Ted House is so important. What is it that the people should understand about the courts? We could probably fill a year's worth of podcasts on that topic. However, one of the most important things that people need to understand is, as Judges Page and House indicated, judges are supposed to be bound by the rule of law. If the system is working as it was designed, judges do not take the bench as philosopher monarchs, imposing their own policy preferences on the people. Their focus should be on the law. One of the most notable examples of this involved Justice Anthony Kennedy in the 1989 case of Texas versus Johnson. Gregory Johnson burned a flag at the 1984 Republican convention in Dallas to protest the policies of the Reagan administration. He was arrested. He was not prosecuted for setting a fire in a public place or causing a public nuisance. Instead, Texas chose to prosecute him under a statute that made it a crime to desecrate a venerated object, which included a state or national flag. The law specifically targeted actions that the actor knows will seriously offend one or more persons. Johnson was convicted of violating this law, sentenced to one year in jail, and fined $2,000. Johnson appealed his conviction, arguing that he had a First Amendment right to express his opposition to the policies of the government, regardless of whether others were offended. The highest court in Texas agreed, overturning Johnson's conviction and stating, the right to differ is the centerpiece of our First Amendment freedoms the state of Texas appealed to the United States Supreme Court. Four members of the court firmly believe that Johnson's actions were protected by the First Amendment. Justice Brennan wrote, If there is a bedrock principle underlying the First Amendment, it is that government may not prohibit the expression of an idea simply because society finds the idea itself offensive or disagreeable. Four members of the court firmly believe that Johnson's actions were not protected by the First Amendment. Justice Stevens wrote, if liberty and equality are worth fighting for and our history demonstrates that they are, it cannot be true that the flag that uniquely symbolizes their power is not itself worthy of protection from unnecessary desecration. With the court split four to four, the case would come down to one justice, Anthony Kennedy. Kennedy's position was complex. On one hand, he had personal revulsion for the act of burning a flag. Kennedy viewed flag burning as offensive. On the other hand, he believed that the First Amendment, as interpreted by the Supreme Court for many years, protected offensive speech. Kennedy faced a conflict between his personal point of view and his professional obligation to follow the law. How would Kennedy resolve this conflict? He crafted a separate opinion to explain his decision. He wrote, quote, I write not to qualify the words Justice Brennan chooses so well, for he says with power all that is necessary to explain our ruling. I join his opinion without reservation, but with a keen sense that this case like others before us from time to time, exacts its personal toll. This prompts me to add to our pages these few remarks. The case before us illustrates better than most that the judicial power is often difficult in its exercise. We cannot here ask another branch to share responsibility as when the argument is made that a statute is flawed or incomplete. For we are presented with a clear and simple statute to be judged against a pure command of the Constitution. The outcome can be laid at no door but ours. The hard fact is that sometimes we must make decisions we do not like. We make them because they are right. Right in the sense that the law and the Constitution as we see them compel the result. And so great is our commitment to the process that, except in the rare case, we do not pause to express distaste for the result, perhaps for fear of undermining a valued principle that dictates the decision. This is one of those rare cases. Our colleagues in dissent advance powerful arguments why respondent may be convicted for his expression, reminding us that among those who will be dismayed by our holding, will be some who have had the singular honor of carrying the flag in battle. And I agree that the flag holds a lonely place of honor in an age when absolutes are distrusted and simple truths are burdened by unneeded apologetics. With all respect to those views, I do not believe the Constitution gives us the right to rule as the dissenting members of the court urge, however painful this judgment is to announce. Though symbols often are what we ourselves make of them, the flag is constant in expressing beliefs Americans share, beliefs in law and peace and that freedom which sustains the human spirit. The case here today forces recognition of the costs to which those beliefs commit us. It is poignant but fundamental that the flag protects those who hold it in contempt. For all the record shows, this respondent was not a philosopher and perhaps did not even possess the ability to comprehend how repellent his statements must be to the republic itself. But whether or not he could appreciate the enormity of the offense he gave, the fact remains that his acts were speech in both the technical and the fundamental meaning of the Constitution. So I agree with the court that he must go free. Justice Anthony Kennedy resolved the conflict between his personal views and his professional obligation by making a commitment to the rule of law. When I used to teach this case in the university setting, some of my students would condemn Kennedy. They would make the argument that Kennedy clearly knew the difference between right and wrong, and yet he chose to extend constitutional protection to an action that he regarded as offensive. Other students argued that this was exactly what they expected a judge to do. He set aside his personal opinion and made a ruling based upon the law. Justice Kennedy's opinion is just as relevant to civic education as it used to be to my teaching of constitutional law. It presents the question of what we expect of our judges. It explores the issue of our commitment to the rule of law. It challenges us to consider the role of the courts in our constitutional system. It offers a topic for people who work in the court to discuss with the public whose support is so vital for the important role of the judiciary in our democracy.
0: Nothing further, Your Honor.
1: There are some resources that you might want to check whether you're involved in criminal proceedings or whether you have other legal questions.
2: That's right. And actually, we encourage you to take advantage of the great civics education programs that the judges mentioned, including the Have Gavel, Will Travel Speakers Bureau option. You can learn more about that on the Discover Missouri Courts website, which is courts.mo.gov slash civic education. Again, courts.mo.gov slash civic education.
1: You've been listening to Is It Legal Too? A regular look at our legal system and you. It's a special production of the Missouri Bar. I'm Bob Pretty,
2: And I'm Farrah Fight.
1: Thanks for being with us.